0: If you're joining us for the first time or maybe the first time in a while we've been working our way through uh one line of scripture through our teaching time here on sundays Uh, one uh section of the new testament called uh, galatians it's from this letter that was written by the apostle paul uh to uh to a church in a region called galatia uh, that we know as modern day turkey uh he paul is trying in this letter to help them cultivate space for God through the Holy Spirit to grow uh, these attributes in their lives. And so all the way back in part one of this series, I mentioned that one of the things I'm excited about in this series is that you're going to hear from some people that you haven't had a chance to really hear from yet. And these are people who are growing in their influence in our church. They've been contributing to the culture and values of our church for some time now. And now we're working just intentionally, kind of coaching them as they expand their influence, which includes giving them opportunities uh, to pour into you uh, here on Sunday mornings. Because we know that in the church, uh, your influence grows exponentially when you have a chance to teach on a Sunday morning on a regular basis. So this spring and summer has kind of ushered in a new uh, chapter for us at Faith Community where... We're growing our teaching team uh, here on Sundays. Uh, So far, you've heard from Amanda Elliott. You've heard from Aaron Francis, Josh Young. Last week, Megan Young. Thank you, Megan, for your message last week. Uh, Such good teaching on gentleness, and she was the right person to bring that message, no doubt. I have so much appreciation for this team, for their preparation process, for their thoughtful study and writing, and I think you know it's no small thing to, to prepare something and then get up here and teach for, you know, in a thoughtful and clear way for 30 or 35 minutes uh, with all of you staring this direction, you know, so I'm grateful to all of them for stepping outside of their comfort zones to begin to explore this new responsibility of teaching in the church. Today, Ben Crosswaite's gonna teach. It'd be easy to presume that everybody here knows Ben, because most of you have seen him, but I know that you don't all know him. So let me give you a little background. Ben is usually uh, right up here in this station, right up here, with the keyboard and a guitar and whoever knows whatever what other instruments. But a little background. Ben, uh, as we like to say, was born a baby. <laughs> we pr- <laughs> little yeah. You know, you know the reference. We probably don't need to go back that far. So. But some of us do go back that far. Ben is our son. Uh, He was four when we founded Faith Community Fellowship. So he's grown up here. He's filled all kinds of roles in the life of this church. From uh, carrying chairs back in our days at the Y to doing puppets in kids' ministry to serving as a student leader when he was in high school, um, and so much behind-the-scenes stuff I couldn't begin to list at all. Obviously, Ben is best known around Faith Community for what he brings to our music. Um, he joined our band when I—I th- I don't know, fourteen or fifteen. I've kind of somewhere in there. Ben, now here, I just want to clarify something. Ben is married to Aaron. Is Aaron in the room? Oh, there you are. So Ben's married to Aaron. She's right there. Just in case you're confused, a few weeks ago you heard from our daughter Erin, <laughs> Ben's sister sitting right there, okay? So it, so just I want to clarify, so not to confuse. For about three years after Ben and Erin were married, we had two Erin Crossweights in our family. So that wasn't confusing at all, And and but they did have some fun with that, especially on social media and maybe to at the expense of some of you because uh, you didn't know which Erin Crossweights you were interacting with. Um, ben and Erin have two children, Forrest and... Hi, hi, bud. Forrest and Ruby. Ben and Aaron spent three years in, in Durham, North Carolina, right after they got married, where they got involved in Cross Point Church in Cary. Uh, ben got involved right away in the music. They gave him some great opportunities there and eventually found his way. Onto the staff, and they've been back here now for nearly four years. And it's probably, I'd like say, obviously, what Ben brings to our music and to our worship experience together, um, and really, really, to our personality as a church, because so much of our personality is tied in with our music and the way that we worship together. So I'm really grateful for that. But the truth is. Uh, Ben, uh, is his influence goes beyond that. He's a, he's a significant voice of influence with me, has been for a long time. Uh, he brings a perspective that is definitely out of the box especially for somebody who's grown up in a pastor's home and somebody whose father grew up in a pastor's home and it's a generational thing but he brings this fresh out of the box viewpoint. Um, he, good luck putting a label on anything that, just about any topic uh, with him. It's just we can't, we haven't been able to compartmentalize and box him in yet and we're not going to try. He's introduced me to voices of influence uh, in his life, whether that's books he's read, he's an avid reader, or podcasts that he listens to or whatever. Influencers I may have never discovered otherwise. So when I first approached Ben about um, his role on this team of influencers, when I asked him about doing some teaching, I'm not sure which of us was more surprised that he said yes. But I'm glad that he did. I'm looking forward to what he has to say today. But before he comes, just let me uh, set this up one more time this is part 10 in the fruitful series we've been reading from galatians chapter 5 verses 22 and 23 where paul says but the holy spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives love joy peace patience kindness Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control. So, throughout the series, we've been saying this is not a to do list. This is not something we have to kind of figure out on our own how to be more loving, more joyful, more peaceful, more have more self control, etc. This is not a to do list. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in us. This is what He wants to produce in our lives. But you and I, this is why we're talking about it, we have a role to play. It's our responsibility to cultivate the soil, the type of soil, the type of character in our heart that actually grows good fruit in our lives. And we can can either help or hinder in this process. So, so far in this series, which by the way, uh, you can find in audio um, on our podcast feed or you can find on video on the media player on our website at faithcommunityfellowship.com. I really encourage you, if you've missed any of that, kind of get caught up on that. So far, we've covered love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness, which means today, if you've been tracking along, you knew where we we're going, we're talking about self-control. So here's Ben with today's teaching. Good
1: morning. good morning. Thanks for that intro. You had a lot of blackmail to work with, and he didn't go with you. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of blackmail. Well, good morning. So back in uh, December of last year, I went on a one-day spiritual pilgrimage of sorts uh, to the distant city of uh, Bangor. You know Bangor? Good, you're here, I, I, was, I went with a joke right up front just to test so we're good, okay. So I went to Bangor to do something I've been thinking about for a long time. Uh, it was a big commitment, but I figured uh, I've already, at this point, had already gotten married, already had two kids, so getting my first tattoo wasn't like the biggest deal in the whole world. And actually, I thought about this tattoo design for about two years, and I only dated Aaron for like a year before I proposed, so I actually put more thought into the tattoo. <laughs> But that's worked out well with her so. <laughs> so these nine squares on my forearm, a few of you have kind of put, started to put it together. Uh, Dad asked if you could steal my design for the background. So um, you're not going crazy. That does. Actually, i got to do it like that to make it match. Uh, but the nine squares on my forearm represent uh, the fruits of the Spirit. So the fruits of the Spirit have become for me over the last five or six years the real like center of my own spiritual practice. Um, it's something I come back to, try to on a daily basis. Um, and so when Dad and I had coffee back in the spring, kind of after the second, the first coffee was like, "Would you ever consider?" And I was like, "I'm sure, maybe I've thought about it." And then the second coffee was, you know, we're doing this teaching spirit, uh, series on the fruits of the spirit. Would you be interested in? Um, which kind of seemed like a ploy to get me to say yes, because he chose the fruits of the spirit that I tattooed on my arm. But uh, whatever, it worked. So, all that to say, I'm excited to be here. Thank you uh, for coming along with me. So, I don't know everyone in this room, um, but I do know this. If a magical genie showed up, Robin Williams in Aladdin style, and offered you more joy or more peace or more goodness, uh, no one here would turn that down. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. I think we can all kind of agree that we would all want more of these things in our lives. Uh, when Paul says in the same chapter that the uh, fruits of the Spirit are listed, when Paul says against such things, talking about the fruits of the Spirit, against such things uh, there is no law. I think on one sense he's probably talking about the Jewish law because that was his context. Uh, but in a broader sense, I think he means just that, that like no one doesn't want more of these things in their lives, at least probably the first eight. But I don't know about you, but what happens to you when you hear self-control? Because I'll tell you kind of my knee-jerk reaction is it's a tension. It's a literal like tenting of my body and my spirit because self-control sounds like something I ought to have or at least ought to want to have uh, but it's not necessarily something I really want to have. If you offered me more joy, I'd, I'd probably get excited about that. Um, if you offered me more self-control, my response would be more like if you offered me like one of those green smoothies that I get advertised on Instagram where it's like, I should probably try it, it seems good for me, but I don't really think I want self-control. It doesn't sound super exciting. So it kind of leads to the question, how can we reframe self-control? How can we think of self-control in a way that makes it more appealing? Because if it's on this list, it means life is probably better when we have more of this attribute. Attribute. So how do we reframe it? I don't really want to exercise self-control when it comes to pizza or tacos, or definitely not with coffee. Uh, I'm not excited about the idea of reining in my lust or my greed or my sarcasm. Um, <laughs> I want to hit home with someone. <laughs> I don't really on the surface want to rein any of that in. So am I, you guys can tell me, like, am I the crazy one who's just like out of control and wants to do it, everyone? Or can you relate? Right? This is kind of these conflicting desires are an innate part of our human experience. I think this is just part of being human. So, Paul. The guy who penned this list we call the Fruits of the Spirit, uh, as well as about half of the New Testament. All throughout Paul's writings, uh, which spans a few decades that he actually wrote them, uh, he's using a few different images to get at the idea of these two conflicting selves within each of us. So I just want to look at a couple well-known passages quickly. They might ring a bell if you are a church person like myself, as you heard. This is um, from uh, Paul's letter to the church in Rome. Uh, This is in Romans 7, 719. I want to do what is good, but I don't. So right off the bat, like some of the Bible was really weird and unrelatable, and you're like, what am I reading? But like right off the bat, I think we can relate to this. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyways. If I do what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. I've discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. So that kind of reads like, Forrest has some of these Dr. Seuss books at the whole point is just to be a tongue twister, and that's what it kind of reads like, but I think it actually gets to the human experience. Well, I think Paul did that on purpose. You're like, it's a twist and a turn, and that's how it feels living as a person with these conflicting desires. We're all twisted up, wanting multiple conflicting things. I want to lose weight, but I also want to eat the whole pizza. I want to be a faithful spouse, but I also want to see what else is out there. I want to be a present parent, but I can't help but keep checking my phone when I'm playing with my kids. It's a constant push and pull, uh, and if you can relate, you know it's pretty exhausting. So elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul is often using the language of life in the Spirit and contrasting that against uh, what older translations called the flesh and newer translations like the NIV called the sinful nature, uh, which is actually probably more accurate. Uh, because Paul isn't talking strictly about our bodies. He's really just talking about our inherent inner pull to selfishness and self-destruction. And, uh, you know, around in, in the church, we might call that our sin condition. There's an inherent pull to selfishness and self-destruction. And he's, Paul is always uh, contrasting this to a life lived in step with the Spirit of Christ, working in us to change us more and more into Christ-like people, people who more and more bear good fruit, more loving, more peaceful, more self-controlled people. Another clear example of where Paul is using this contrasting language is in Galatians 5, which is the very same chapter where we get the list. I'm sorry, I'm not used to having this here. Uh, Same chapter where we get the list of the fruits of the Spirit. Uh, The fruits of the Spirit is actually a list that's kind of in contrast to a previous list right before it. It's giving examples of what it looks like living in our automatic Base kind of human defaults. Uh, uh, most translations call that the, the fruits of the flesh. So, leading into that whole passage where we get the fruits of the flesh contrasted against the fruits of the Spirit, Paul says this in Galatians 5 16. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature, which remember is just kind of our flawed, inherent pull to self destruction essentially. The the sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the spirit wants. And the spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other, so you are not free to carry out your good intentions. So to sum all that up, within you are two competing yous, essentially. So how many of you would say you are really proud with your automatic responses to what life throws at you on a daily basis? In the stress, I saw that face. In the stress of a workplace, in the chaos of family life, in a super tense social political climate, you're just always, without fail, automatically responding in ways you're super proud of, without really trying that hard, right? So I thought, okay, so of, <laughs> sometimes uh, going through life simply responding in our automatic way to every outside stimulus—it's hardly living at all—but it's what most of us kind of spend our time doing. Bouncing around from the thing that pushes our buttons to the thing that pushes our buttons to the thing that pushes our buttons. So here's why I think this really matters for us here today too. I think God has so many things that God wants for us and to do through us. But when we are living just simply in our automatic selves, living a life just devoid of self-control, there's no longer any room for God's Spirit to work in us. Uh, Proverbs 25, 28 says, Like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. So how can God use us when we're utterly kind of vulnerable to every outside stimulus around us? When our walls are broken through, when we lack all self-control. Kind of the great irony is that following your automatic self will feel like freedom. In 2022, we are more free than ever to buy what we want, experience what we want, eat what we want, sleep with who we want, work where we want. We can basically do whatever we want. And yet, we have an epidemic of anxiety, depression, meaninglessness. I think there's all sorts of confusing and convoluted reasons for that. But I think a big one is that true life and true freedom is not just doing whatever you want. Because if it was, we'd be a lot happier society. True life and true freedom is not doing whatever you want whenever you want. Freedom comes from having the self-control to do what you ought to do for the good of yourself, in the end, and your neighbor. So we started by talking about the need to kind of just reframe self-control. And so this is my working definition of self-control that I've been using. To to have self-control is to be free from the tyranny of our automatic responses. Free from the tyranny of our automatic responses. And this is something we all want, because who doesn't want to be free? And in addition to that, for those of us who are trying to follow in the way of Jesus, to help self-control is to be free from the tyranny of outside stimulus so that we can be a pure vessel, usable for God's Spirit to work through us. In other words, the point isn't simply how having self-control will benefit us, though I, it will. But for those of us here today, many of us, the point... Is so that we can be a pure vessel, more readily usable for the Spirit to work through us. To grow good fruit in us, the same God who makes blueberries pop up at the edge of my yard every summer, to grow good fruit in us. So I hope self control is starting to sound a little more appealing, at least, than it did a few minutes ago. I want us to start to see self control not as a grit your teeth and get through it inconvenience that we ought to do, but I hope we can see self control as ultimately meaning freedom and in the end, who doesn't want to be free? Uh, just one more thing before we go too far. I think it can be easy to associate self-control, or more specifically, the lack of it, with big moral failures. Cheating on your spouse, abandoning your principles in pursuit of more money, uh, you know, a big temper that kind of puts on a big show and ruins everything behind you. Um, and while well, I think everything I'm going to say today will help us, with, if that's the case uh, for you, I'm not necessarily talking about these big... Uh, newsworthy failings of self-control. I'm really talking about self-mastery just in everyday lives. Our lives are full of tiny moments every day where our own self-mastery or lack of it shows. With intentionality and time, we become more and more in control of ourselves. But I'd venture to say most humans on the planet are stuck living like dogs chasing squirrels, one outside stimulation to another, And this addiction we all have to our broken ways of responding to those is what I want to kind of help us start to break away from today. So there's this quote I love from one of my all-time favorite thinkers, a man named Viktor Frankl. This is a pretty well-known quote of his, uh, and this is actually the reason I used an outlined square on my arm to represent self-control. So Frankl's quote uh, says this, Between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. And in our response lies our growth and freedom. So let me just give you some examples from my own life. Between my kids waking up two hours before they were expected to, which I wrote this weeks ago and it actually happened today, and my attitude for the rest of the morning, there is a space. Between waiting in a line and experiencing just that little split second of boredom and picking up my phone to get on Instagram again, there is a space. Between putting on a microphone and going up to speak in front of people and throwing up, there's the space. Thanks for laughing. I weighed whether or not to say throwing up into a microphone, but I did. I went for it. (laughs) So start to think about it for yourselves. What are some of the common situations in your life that are most likely going to hit your buttons in a way that you respond from that broken, unhealthy, automatic self? So some common Button pushing moments. Is it every day when you get home, to, every day when you get to work, or maybe every day when you get home from work? Every time you look at your phone and it's your mom calling? Every time you're in traffic? Every time politics comes up? Every time your spouse puts the dishes away in that way that's like really annoying to you? Every time your kid says they will never ever, forever, never ever eat anything other than chicken nuggets? <laughs> Do any of these like button pushing moments like kind of sound familiar? So if so, just start to think about what your typical automatic response is to them. Start to think about what your go-to automatic responses are, your greatest hits, if you will. The automatic responses that you go to the most. So just remember, for those of us who are trying to follow Jesus, which is not the same as believing in some vague theological construct about him, if we are really trying to model our lives after the life he lived then moving past our automatic responses to what life throws at us really matters. Jesus calls us to something better, something, a more abundant life than a life of automatic responses to life just hitting our buttons over and over until we die. So here's what I believe. God is in the process of renewing all of creation right now. I believe that. God is in the process of renewing all of creation right now. And here's kind of the, the craziest part, right? We are invited to participate and this renewal of all of creation in partnership with God. And I believe this is where life is at its best, the ongoing partnership with the Spirit of God moving in the world. But, and this is kind of where things get high stakes, God can only use people who are free enough to be used. A person without self-control is a person God can't use. And maybe it's a little controversial, to list anything on a church screen that's of something God can't do. But if you just read throughout, especially the Old Testament, all these stories of God trying to get through to people, and they just, He can't, God will not control us. Um, and so a person without self control is a person God can't use. So there's a space between the outside stimulus in our lives and our response to them. In that space, there's a chance for us to choose our response and ask God's Spirit to guide us in the best direction. But what about this space? How do we grow it? How do we live in it? How do we expand that space enough to even have the time and capacity to make better decisions and gradually become more and more who God is calling us to be? So that's what we're going to spend the rest of our time talking about. I want to leave you with a couple practices that have really uh, borne good fruit in my life when I actually practice them. I'm not coming at this from the perspective of a master. I I don't do this all the time. I I don't have it all down. Um, But these practices are really intended to help grow that space between the thing that hits our buttons and our response to it so that we can become more and more free from our automatic patterns, more and more open to where the Spirit is taking us and the good fruit God wants to bear in us and through us. So there's two practices. Let's talk about making space and looking both ways. So making space. One of the most undeniable patterns we see when we look at Jesus' life is this rhythm he establishes of balancing his intensely active life with a pattern of withdrawing and going off by himself somewhere, often in nature, to pray, to rest, to get away from all the outside stimulation uh, and hear more clearly the voice of God talking to him. This pattern is apparently so common and important of the way Jesus lived his life that his disciples knew well of his habits. There's even a reference um, where they can't find Jesus, and they're like, oh, I know where he is. He's off praying in that spot again in the woods. I counted six different times the gospel writers mentioned Jesus going away by himself to quiet places to rest, um, and I know that there are even more of mentions than that. I just stopped counting. This rhythm of rest and getting away was obviously a foundational part of Jesus' life. A rhythm of life that regularly makes space for solitude and silence and stillness is meant to be a non-negotiable for followers of Jesus. In modern Western culture, where our self-worth is tied up in what we can produce and achieve, and being tired all the time is kind of like a badge of honor we like to brag about, this rhythm that Jesus lived by can sound pretty foreign to us. But this rhythm of solitude and rest, and getting away from all the stimulation is not an optional add-on for those of us who are trying to follow Jesus. This is something that I I can so easily fall into, you know, just the day-to-day stimulation, bouncing from one thing I have to do to another. And Jesus, I think, is saying, look, this is, if you're going to model your life after me, this is not an an optional add-on. This rhythm of withdrawing on a regular basis is as much a part of Jesus' way of life as the other greatest hits of his, like the Golden Rule or the Great Commission. Silence and solitude and rest is meant to be a non-negotiable. So we have to get away from all the noise. One of the ways to help grow our self-control, that is to increase this space between the thing that hits our buttons and our response to it. One of the best ways to grow that space is to simply create more space around us. So one of my best friends from my time living in North Carolina, he went on a two-day, like nearly silent retreat in a monastery in upstate New York. On his way back to North Carolina, uh, he had someone to see in New York City. So right after experiencing two days of near silence on a tranquil, okay, you you get the idea. Obviously, he said that was like a super jarring, that was one of the biggest takeaways was that just the jarringness of going from this monastery to a subway in New York City. But it doesn't have to take such extreme examples. Go on a hike in Acadia, leave your phone in the car, if if that's safe, I don't know, maybe they recommend bring your phone, put it in airplane mode, and um, go on a hike in Acadia, don't look at your phone, take some time, sit by the ocean, drink your coffee, that makes everything better, and then go back home, and the next time you open your Instagram, or the next time you watch TV, or the next time you go to Walmart, it's gonna feel a lot more stimulating than it did without that hike, without that space. It's gonna feel like drinking soda after switching over to Seltzers. What used to be normal is now so sweet and overwhelming. Most of us are suffering all the time from stimulation exhaustion. We're absolutely just bombarded from our phones, sure, from TVs, but also everything else. Just jam-packed schedules, demanding jobs. One trip to the store, you're seeing thousands of advertisements, bright colors, like a few generations back, not like cavemen, like a few generations back, they did not get as much stimulation as we get one trip to Walmart. But yet we've kind of just accepted that this is just like baseline, normal life, and it's not. So it's bad enough that we're stimulation exhausted, but it's worse that we don't know it. And it seems to me that exhaustion is one of the biggest factors that cause those catastrophic, life-altering, lack of self-control events, right? They think about the The politicians and the megachurch pastors, how many affairs or ruined friendships or sketchy business things or fill in the blank, how many of those could be traced back to an exhausted person that was just too tired to exercise any self control? There's a story in the Old Testament of two brothers, uh, Jacob and Esau. You can read the whole story in Genesis uh, 25. In it, the older brother Esau trades, trades away his entire inheritance, his entire future. He gives it away to his brother. Do you remember what for? A bowl of stew. So I've seen ads like, on YouTube for like a Chipotle burrito right around lunchtime. They, they do that on purpose. They know when you're hungry. And I've said things like, oh, man, I would give anything for that burrito right now. But I don't like, mean that. I wouldn't literally give anything. I would probably pay like, a little more than I should if I'm really hungry and that ad hits me at the right time. But I'm not going to give up everything, my future, for that. In this story, Esau gives up everything for a bowl of stew. But do you remember why? you know the story, he was utterly exhausted. You can read the whole story for more context, but here's the point. We don't want to exhaust ourselves into an Esau-level mistake. We have to make space in our lives. We have to start seeing a spacious life, our surroundings, that lead to a spacious interior as a non-negotiable for following Jesus. Not something we'll do when the kids are older or when we have enough money saved up, we have to make making space a top priority. As we create more space around us and inside us, I think we'll start to see the space between the thing that hits our buttons and our knee jerk reaction to that grow. From there, God can start to work in us to bear the better fruit He wants to bear in our lives. At the end of the day, we don't want to be the fool in the story who sold their entire future for a Chipotle burrito. The second practice I want to leave with you today is, I'm just going to call it looking both ways. Actually, kind of feels like if the book of Proverbs was written in this century, there could be a proverb along the lines of like, the wise man looks both ways before crossing the street, but the fool steps into traffic and dies. Sounds harsh, but like most of Proverbs is, if you read it. So looking both ways. We look back to notice where life has been pushing our buttons, and we've been responding in unhealthy, unhelpful ways missing out on a potential response that God could be calling us to instead. And we look forward to see situations coming up in the near future where those same buttons might get pushed again. And we prayerfully decide ahead of time how we are going to respond in a way closer to the response that Jesus has for us. Either by maybe it's predeciding what we will say, or maybe it's just doing like the first apostles in Acts, who prayed that God would just give them the right response when the time came. So quickly, let's just break down both of these a bit more. There's this historical prayer practice from the 1500s I love called the Prayer of examine. Its roots go back to a man named St. Ignatius of Loy- Loyola. His work formed the Jesuit order in Catholicism, and I've come to find his writings and writings about his teachings to be some of the most like transformational, uh, transformational for me personally. This prayer, prayer of examine, as it's called, is as it sounds. It's a prayer of, uh, of examination, looking back on your day, typically prayed at the end of your day. So Jesuit priests uh, pray this prayer daily as part of their religious life, and I, I have friends who try to do it on a daily basis as well. There's a real richness to this traditional prayer, and it spans much more than specifically just the idea of self-control that we're talking about. Uh, But as it relates to self-control, here's kind of a three-step way to break it down and think of things. So first, take time at the end of the day to reflect on times your buttons were pushed. Take time at the end of the day just to reflect and notice. Be kind to yourself, but just start to notice. Second, take note of your responses. When did you respond from that automatic place in a less than ideal way? When was the space between stimulus and response actually big enough for you to pause and say a quick prayer or make a better decision than that one you would have done kind of from the automatic place? And then finally, just pray. And here's a kind of a three, three guides for, for praying. Thank God for the ways you were able to practice self-control and listen God's voice. Just thank God for the ways that he was working in you through that day. Thank God for forgiveness for the times that we were kind of less than we would have liked to be and less than God is calling us to be. And then finally, start, instead of look, that's kind of the looking back part. Start to look forward. Think about specific situations you know you'll be in tomorrow and pray for wisdom and strength to navigate those well with a high level of self-control. The more we pause and reflect and simply acknowledge to ourselves and God the ways we responded with knee-jerk reactions that weren't what we would have done if we could have written out a script ahead of time, the more we can see and acknowledge our own inability to act in the ways God is calling us to. The more we do that, the more we can start to forge new paths. So kind of the hope as we start to develop this practice is that the next time that the same button-pushing moment comes, Maybe there'll be a tiny little space between the button being pushed and your own internal reaction. And in that timeless little space, you can actually prayerfully look at your options of responses instead of going with your gut automatic response. You can prayerfully look at those responses and choose the one that you believe God is calling you to, not the one your automatic impulse chooses on its own just remember, like, looking back, this practice of looking back on our day and kind of seeing how we did, essentially, seeing where God was working, see where we actually listened, see where we didn't. Looking back isn't about beating ourselves up. It's really just all about this um, getting information about how your day went and where God might have been working in your life and where you missed it so that you can look forward to the next day. You can imagine how, I do this in very short spurts, like I said, I'm not a master, but you can imagine doing this day after day after day. It builds this muscle of self-control and of this awareness of God's spirit trying to work through you in the everyday life. Let me give you uh, one example from my life to illustrate. Um, I haven't used an alarm clock in over like four years uh, because almost every morning I'm woken up by one of my kids. I'm sure many of you can relate to that. Four days a week, my wife Erin... Uh, has woken up before the sun to go to work and punch in by 5 a.m. And on those days, my morning starts as soon as the first little one's up. And our house isn't that big, which typically means when one wakes up, the other one wakes up. And so you've got, you go from a nice quiet house of three sleeping people to two wide awake tiny people and one big person crawling around. I know it look like Tom Hanks in Castaway, like just <laughs> desperately looking for water, but it's coffee. A couple of years ago, uh, back when there was just one little one, when it was just Forrest, um, there was a season where I was trying to wake up quite early to get up before he would. Have some time to breathe, do some reading, listen to a podcast, maybe even write. Time to just be alone, feed my soul in some way before getting into the day. I had, I had started to notice that I wasn't always in the best mood uh, when he would wake me up and kind of force me into the day with that jolt, right? So I tried to get ahead of that by waking up really early. Some days were great. I'd read something really inspiring. The coffee was hitting just right. Um, It just kind of, you know, I was ready to, when he woke up, I was ready to be the best dad I could be. Other days, when I heard the pitter patter of his feet coming down the house, it would instantly bring up some really strong frustration. Just that, are you serious? How is he up already? Like Google says he needs like 10 hours of sleep. That was definitely like six and a half. Why? The sound of my kid waking up earlier than expected and messing with my plans for my quiet morning to myself, where I was going to do something very spiritual, of course, was this trigger that set off a bad mood that could stick around for hours or even most of the day. And it's embarrassing to admit how often the people we love the most are the ones pushing our buttons like this, right? Eventually, though, as I continued trying to get up early and create that space, I started to see something, or rather, I I do think God brought brought this to my attention. This frustrated, short-tempered, irritated dad was not the kind of dad I wanted to be. So I just asked God for help. And that more spacious place that I had carved out, going back to that idea of just making space, finding time if it's waking up early, staying up late, whatever you got to do. I was able to see this recurring button getting pushed. And only after I saw it could I invite God to help me with it. I saw that moment where I was alone, enjoying my quiet morning, and then I heard my son running toward me. I saw that microsecond as a crossroads. I could allow it to be a frustration. I could allow my tone of voice to convey that frustration. I could cry out to the universe for the grave injustice that it was that I didn't get to finish my podcast episode. Or I could choose love and joy and kindness and gentleness. It breaks my heart to think that my son or my daughter would ever feel like they were putting me out just by being there, just wanting to see me. So it's my prayer that I started praying in that moment that I can be constantly filled with more and more peace and patience so that even though I'm a flawed vessel, my kids will know that the creator of the universe and of them is loving and patient and kind because that's what their dad was to them. And so much of that being true or not comes down to what extent I have developed self-control. So this kind of leads me to my final, my final point. Jesus would often end his parables in an unsettling, word-of-warning type way. Uh, many old, old Testament stories do this as well. It's not the Disney movie. It kind of all works out in the end that we're used to. Uh, but I do want to leave us with a sense that something is at stake. Because I, be- I believe something is at stake for all of us. The outline of the self-control uh, square on my tattoo is black. The symbolism of that for me is, is the idea of just permanent ink. I know the whole thing's permanent, I'm aware, but the black ink is simulating uh, that, that permanence. Because uh, whether I'm having a good day or not, every day, every moment, I'm making choice after choice after choice that isn't permanent ink. Have you ever tried going back in time to fix a mistake? It doesn't, it doesn't work. If you've watched Back to the Future, but when Marty McFly goes back, it gets really weird. His mom's a teenager and like tries to hit on him. It's bad. Like just don't, don't do time machines. <laughs> I'm gonna fall off my chair. So I absolutely believe, of course, in grace and redemption and these beautiful concepts that are at the very heart of this Jesus tradition. But still, I've never known Jesus to offer someone at Time Machine. Our actions do have consequences. Jesus can heal a really broken relationship between a parent and a child, but that parent and that child don't get to go back in time and relive the childhood days. They're just gone. Jesus can help people out of deep, dark addictions, but we don't get to have back those lost years when we were a total mess. Jesus offers grace and redemption and even takes the very mistakes we made and can use those for beautiful things. But when the psalmist prays in Psalm ninety twelve, teach us to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. I think that prayer is saying, don't let me forget my life is very short. And I only get this one life. So let that inform everything I do. When I die, here's what I want. I'll go on the record. I want to be buried in one of those biodegradable coffins that will allow my body to like, go back to the earth and grow literal f- fruit around me. This sounds like a cool idea. <laughs> but more importantly, what I want is everyone that was close to me to speak. Um, not of anything I've accomplished, but I want my kids and my grandkids and my, my friends and my acquaintances to speak of these things. My contagious joy, my peace that went beyond understanding, my patience in the face of hard things, my indiscriminate kindness to others, the good, world-bettering work I did, the faithfulness I showed to my family and to my commitment, my gentle spirit, and above all, I hope I I am known as someone who loved well. Now, to be clear, this is my hope. My aspiration, my finish line, I try my best and walk toward. It's why I tattooed these bright colors on my arm where I can see them constantly. It's a reminder of what I want to define my life. But here's the thing, it's not a given. It's up to me and my willingness to exercise the muscle of self-control, even when it's uncomfortable. It's up to me to partner with the Spirit in whatever God has in store for me. People won't talk about self-control at my funeral or yours. They never do. I'm a pastor's kid. I've been to a lot of funerals. I've never heard anyone mention self-control. But my prayer for my own life and for yours is that these other fruits, people do talk about love, and they do talk about joy, and they do talk about kindness. My prayer is that, this, that these fruits could be the legacy that we leave behind in the world. I kind of think at the end of the day, that's what we're doing here. If we're just here to listen to the band, and this dork, then, you know, that's not, that's not enough. But my prayer is that um, these, these fruits of the Spirit will be the legacy we leave behind in the world. And so much of whether or not this becomes true will hinge on our self-control. The band is going to come to the stage, um, and I'm going to close with a short benediction that I wrote for us. I always find it meaningful when Talks end with something like this, and so I want to share it with you. Thank you again for your attention. I really appreciate it. All right. So I want to leave you with this. May you, my sisters and brothers, grow more and more good fruit in the coming seasons. May you be blessed with the skill of self control so that your life will be fertile soil for God's good fruit to grow in you. May you know deep, unshakable joy that goes beyond circumstance and simple, fleeting happiness. May you know deep, unshakable peace that surpasses all understanding. May you know the patience of God, and may you be filled with the patience to carry well the weight of daily life. May you know the kindness of God, and may you be indiscriminately kind to all who cross your path. May you know the goodness of God, and may you get your hands dirty, bringing God's kingdom to earth. May you know the faithfulness of God, and may you be faithful to the calling on your life. May you know the gentleness of God, and may you live with gentle strength. Above all, may you know the infinite love of God in an intimate way, and may your daily life be rich in that love. And amidst a chaotic life that is constantly hitting our buttons, may God give you the self control you need to bear all of this very good fruit in your life. Amen.